Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. Again, we thank you for what we celebrate today. We thank you for those father figures you put in our lives uh, to raise us and to teach us, and most importantly, to teach us about you. Uh, whether that was even a Sunday school teacher or a, a VBS teacher or uh, somebody who we knew who took us to church or, or talked to us about Jesus, whoever it was, Lord, I pray that they would uh, receive a special blessing from you today. And most importantly, we thank you uh, for, for you, and we thank you that you never fail us. You will always be the Father that we need, whether or not we know it or like it, <laughs> You will always be the Father that we need. We thank you for your word, that your standards are clear-cut, uh, and, and you have given us a very clear instruction book for how to live this life on this earth. And we thank you for giving us the gift of eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are quite a few burglaries in the history of the world with thieves brazenly carrying out plans to get what they want, no matter how shocking those plans may be. For instance, in 1976, while the Middle Eastern nation of Lebanon was engulfed in a civil war, a group of thieves took advantage of the national turmoil. While the authorities and powers were mainly focused on the war, these thieves entered a Catholic church located right next to the British Bank of the Middle East, used explosives to blow through the wall, and had professional locksmiths they brought with them crack open the safes and made off with $44.5 million dollars in cash, stocks, gold bars, jewels, and other valuable goods. Today, those stolen goods are worth three times that amount and an estimated $133.5 million. None of the goods were recovered and no one was arrested. In 2004, in Northern Ireland, a week before Christmas, a group of thieves dressed as police officers entered the homes of two different bank managers. They took the families of these managers hostage and instructed the managers to go into work as usual the following day. At the end of that work day, the managers let the thieves into the bank and let them into the vaults where they made off with $31.4 million worth of cash, making it the largest bank robbery in Irish history. The case has still not been solved, and only one person has been arrested since then for money laundering. But nothing compares to the 2005 Banco Central burglary in Fortaleza, Brazil, in terms of sheer commitment and effort. A band of 25 members formed a fake landscaping business as a front, then went about in broad daylight under the guise of landscape work, dug a tunnel 656 feet long under two city blocks, uh, then crawled through this tunnel, blasted through a meter-thick wall of steel-reinforced concrete, and disappeared with $65 million, all of it uninsured. Since the robbery took place on a weekend, neither the theft nor the hole in the wall were discovered until the following Monday, by which time the, leaves, the thieves were long gone. 
Only one member of the crew was found dead and eight arrested following the robbery with only a minuscule fraction of the stolen amount recovered. As shocking as these robberies are, there is a truth that is astronomically more shocking than that even to this day. What is that shocking truth? And especially as we look around us at our nation and the world and we can see that we're living in what the Bible describes as the last days. What does this shocking truth mean for our lives today? We left Jesus' conversation last week with the remnants of the estimated 20,000 people who he miraculously fed with just five loaves of bread and two fish. With Jesus declaring that if anyone wants to be made right with God the Father, he or she must have their spiritual eyes opened by the Father first. If God the Father opens the spiritual eyes of someone, then everything in his word suddenly will make sense. And that person can't help but put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin and be given eternal life. If God the Father chooses not to open the spiritual eyes of someone, then that person will simply not care or care enough about making the decision to commit their lives to Jesus. As we've been discussing over the past month or so, the people who Jesus is talking with can't wrap their minds around what Jesus is saying to them. They're so focused on the physical and what they think Jesus should be doing as the messianic king and the fulfillment of the prophet that Moses foresaw would come 1,500 years before this, the prophet who would know God face to face. God had fed the Israelites, having been freed from Egyptian slavery, bread from heaven, which they called manna, or what is it? They were really creative with their name giving. Jewish rabbis had taught for a long time that a new manna would accompany the Messiah's kingdom when he established it. Now that Jesus had already miraculously multiplied physical bread, the people jumped at the opportunity, demanded Jesus to just hurry up already and start giving the new manna, which would signify him establishing the messianic kingdom and finally kicking out the oppressive Romans. Jesus knew his first coming wasn't the time for that, but the people kept insisting. When Jesus responded to the people's demands with spiritual truths, instead of simply doing what they wanted him to do, they responded with getting offended and getting angry at him. We talked last week about how a lot of people today still respond with getting offended and angry at Jesus in God's word for declaring that there's only one way to God and heaven and that's only through repentance of sin and putting faith and trust in Jesus's death and resurrection as substitute payment for that sin. As we pick up with our passage this morning, the people, much like the Jewish people today, hold Moses up as the greatest prophet that has ever lived. His reverence comes from the reference in Deuteronomy that he is the only prophet to have known God face to face. But if people paid attention to that prophecy, most importantly, Moses was referencing someone who would come after him, 
who would also know God face to face. So in our passage this morning, Jesus takes that anticipation that the people already had of him, being that foreseen prophet that came after Moses, but takes it one step further. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 6. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 6 or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone, John 6, we're going to pick up in verse 46, and we read, not that anyone has seen the Father, this was in our scripture reading just a minute ago, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. As much as the Jewish people then and now revered Moses, Jesus makes a reference to himself as the one who is from God. Moses only saw the glory of God and not the full manifestation of who God is. The Son of God, which Jesus states here, in which the Apostle John states in chapter 1, verse 18, is the only one who has seen the full manifestation of God the Father, what he looks like and all of his full glory. As such, as Jesus says here, Jesus alone is the one who can teach who God is and what his plan for humanity is. And as such, Jesus alone is the one through whom a mere human being can come to God the Father in any way and even be restored to a full relationship with him. No other human being No matter if they've been canonized as a saint or not, nor Jesus' earthly mother, nor any other physical or metaphysical being can provide any way to God. It is only through Jesus and Jesus alone, as Jesus himself says right here. As Jesus is the only one to see God the Father, he is the greatest mouthpiece or prophet or authoritative representative of God the Father. He alone is the one we can receive any of the truth of God from. See, even today, a lot of people wholeheartedly believe that they can take some nice sayings from Jesus and some others from Buddha or Gandhi or different rabbis or other religious teachers or even some guy who fancies himself a self-help spiritual guru and just add different aspects of all of these religions and worldviews to their belief system and come up with a spiritual hodgepodge of everything claiming to be spiritual or in tune with the universe and if you add the heart of all of it up in reality you're left with fluff that sounds nice but is really nothing as jesus says any truth And any knowledge of God, how we relate to God, how we get to the only ultimate afterlife, and what the human life is all about, can only come from the one who created the universe in the first place, establishing his plan for everything in it. And Jesus is the only one who knows him completely, and thus is the only one to communicate any of it to us. Therefore, any knowledge of these truths can only come from and through Jesus. That's it. 
This foundation of irrefutable and absolute truth is what leads to Jesus' summary of all that he's told this crowd before. So this may start to seem familiar uh, to some of you here, because a lot of this is Jesus summarizing what he's already told this crowd before. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. What is given in verse 47 and what follows through verse 51, again, is a summary of everything Jesus has already revealed to this crowd. The only way to God is through faith in Jesus. Everything Jesus claimed to be, God himself, the authoritative representative of God the Father, and thus judge of souls, the Savior from sin, and the eternal King. Notice what Jesus simply says and everything else that Jesus leaves out. What does Jesus leave out for any kind of basis for where one ends up after they die? He leaves out any amount of good works, any amount of prayers, no matter who they're to, what direction you face, or way they're offered by candle, wheels turned, etc. Any amount of dietary rules, any amount of rules followed in general, or any amount of inherent goodness one thinks they have. Jesus doesn't mention any of that. He only mentions one thing, believing in him and all that he claims and did for us. All that one needs to do to have eternal life, as Jesus says in verse 47, is believe. Believe what? Everything else Jesus has said and done, that everything starts with God, that our sin separates us from God, that sin requires death and eternal separation from God in hell as payment, something we all deserve, that we can't do anything about it ourselves, and we need someone sinless to pay for our sin on our behalf, that Jesus as God, and therefore sinless, paid for our sin as a substitute on our behalf, and then rose again three days later to prove himself as God, that that sacrifice through God opening our spiritual eyes must drive us to repent of our sin and accept Jesus as the Savior from that sin, and that that commitment includes taking Jesus for all of who he is in our lives, both Savior and King, over the rest of our lives. Like I mentioned last week, that requires complete humility. But it's very simple. And as we read Jesus himself saying, it's the only one. Faith, by God's grace, and God's movement in our hearts to be given eternal life. It's the only way. It's not what the world thinks makes sense, just like the crowd Jesus is talking to thinks makes sense about what Jesus as the Messiah should really be doing. What makes sense to the world is that you have to do something, anything, to earn a good afterlife. Follow the five pillars, follow the Torah, do things to attract good energy, self-sacrifice, make pilgrimages, light candles, and make offerings at shrines to deities or ancestors, enter a state of mindfulness or mindlessness, do good works, or just try to be a good person. 
Why? Why does the world think you have to do something? Because all the other faiths of this world are built on self. That's why. Even if there are other deities that are worshipped or appeased in some way, you have to earn favor and earn a good afterlife through things you can do. That's all anyone else can wrap their minds around. It's shocking to this world to hear that all God requires is that one repents of themselves and their sin, not trying to make up for it, but rather putting their trust for their afterlife in someone else. That's simply unheard of. But that's exactly what Jesus is stating in verse 47. As all of that is summarized by Jesus in verse 47, he next summarizes everything that comes after that faith decision and commitment to Jesus in verse 48. Something else we've been discussing a lot lately. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. One very short sentence, but so much in that statement. Once God has opened our eyes and moved in our hearts to repent of our sin and take Jesus as both the Savior from that sin and King over the rest of our lives, Jesus is all we need for our spiritual sustenance. And therefore, all we need to face anything we experience in this life. We've discussed this a lot more extensively in the past few weeks, but just as Jesus summarizes here, we'll summarize this too. The world complicates everything. Just as it adds to the only faith that results in eternal life, it screams as loud as it can that you, no matter if you've put your faith in Jesus or not, can only find your worth, your identity, your sanity, your peace, and your happiness in things that the world can give. All of that is a lie, as Jesus explains in verse 48. The only source of our worth, the only source of our identity, our sanity, our peace, and our joy is in the new life Jesus has won for us, the hope in the future of Jesus coming back for us, and the Holy Spirit Jesus gives to us through faith in him, who then grows these characteristics of God within us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control frees us from chains of addiction, depression, spiritual warfare, and fear, and ultimately transforms our entire worldview and how we process through everything that happens in the world and in our personal lives. In summary and in short, the only one we ever need for faith and life in this earthly life and our individual human experience is Jesus and Jesus alone. The people Jesus is talking to, again, are looking for Jesus to start raining down the physical new manna in connection to his messianic kingdom or physical bread from heaven. That would also mean they never go hungry again. Again, the people are only focused on the physical and what Jesus should be physically doing. But again, this first time on earth, Jesus is focused on revealing deep spiritual truths about God and getting people to focus on those spiritual truths in connection with their innermost being, their souls. Uh, 
That's why, again, in summary, Jesus calls the people out for only focusing on the physical bread or new manna or the physical source they think will fulfill them and what they want out of life. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. The original manna was bread that God gave to his people after they rebelled against Moses and challenged God himself with their grumbling. In his grace and mercy, God then gave his people this physical manna to feed them, but ultimately that physical manna did nothing to stop them all from eventually experiencing physical deaths. The physical manna had a limit, and a giant limit at that. It was only temporary and only satisfied a physical need. And not only that, but the new manna the people kept griping for only satisfied a physical need. But as Jesus already has explained, he is the only source of salvation for the human soul and only source of spiritual sustenance, which then ultimately fulfills the physical needs of humanity. Verses 50 through 51. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus had already revealed that as the true bread of life out of heaven, he is the only source of salvation and sustenance. But now Jesus introduces a new concept, eating him to receive that salvation and sustenance. He introduces this concept of eating him as the bread of life, as him giving his flesh to the world. The people understood that Jesus was referring to people needing to eat his flesh in order to receive eternal life and spiritual sustenance. We get that understanding from the next verse we'll cover next week. Now, imagine being a part of this crowd and hearing this for the first time, especially understanding it in a purely physical way. <laughs> You'd be taken aback. A bit. A lot, I'd say. This is shocking. This is disgusting. And this is abhorrent, especially to the Jewish crowd standing in front of Jesus when he says this. No wonder they respond with such violence recoiling in the next verse. Such violent recoiling. We've heard about Jesus giving his body and blood for our salvation, represented by the bread and wine or grape juice and communion observance, so many times that the shock value of it is all but lost on us by this point. But imagine hearing this for the first time. Jesus is talking about eating his flesh to have eternal life and have spiritual sustenance. That's something that's drastically different from every other major faith or belief system in the world too. That's something that makes you do a double take and perhaps even double over. But that was Jesus's point. 
He meant what he said to have shock value and to cause people to respond with being disturbed and even being offended by him saying this to them. Of course, from what we see in the rest of Scripture, we know that Jesus' language is meant to be spiritual and metaphorical in nature, just like the rest of what he's been describing to people. As such, what he means in verses 50 through 51 is to be understood as purely from the spiritual realm. That one needs to spiritually take Jesus' sacrifice of his flesh and blood and making it one with themselves. Just as one takes physical food and makes it one with themselves. And just like one takes physical food and makes it one with themselves and therefore nourishes that body, taking Jesus' body and blood as sacrifice for oneself personally then provides the spiritual nourishment we've always been craving and will only ever need. We'll get into this next week especially as we cover the verses that pertain to eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood. But just as an introductory statement, as noted by biblical scholarship, these verses do not give evidence to the sacramentalism of the bread and wine that is believed by different churches when taking the Eucharist. What I mean by sacramentalism of the bread and wine of the Eucharist is this, as we'll see more next week. When believers in Jesus partake in the bread and wine or grape juice of the Eucharist or communion, they do not physically turn into the body and blood of Jesus upon entering the human body. They are symbols and representations in meaning of Jesus' body and blood given for us, which we identify with in taking his sacrifice as having been given for us as a substitute and payment for our sin, and in identifying with the same suffering he went through as we live our lives in persecution and suffering as he did. Getting back to our passage this morning, the people could only conceive of and could only wrap their minds around what they were used to and what made sense to them. They only processed what Jesus was telling them through the teaching that was already given to them by their rabbis and teachers for hundreds of years. So when Jesus describes himself in spiritual terms and then introduces such a revolting concept connected to eating his flesh, their only response was one of shock and speechlessness. Ultimately, however, this shocking revelation was the people's only hope for their souls. Not only the sustenance for them in this earthly life, but eternal life in the next. As I already went through earlier, this shocking revelation is the only hope for our souls today. Not only the sustenance for them in this earthly life, but eternal life in the next. People in this world can only conceive of faith consisting of earning favor with deities or the universe to better themselves. The spiritual reality is completely different and is therefore shocking and offensive. People in this world can only wrap their minds around things they can see, feel, experience, or see as remote possibilities that can happen in worldly and human ways. It's downright offensive to see the need to be saved from your sin. 
It's inconceivable that any solutions to the country's and world's problems can be anything other than what people can physically do. And it's downright shocking to live according to and process through what is happening in this country and in this world currently only through processing it through God's word, lining everything up in the culture with God's commands for biblical living for his children and rejecting everything in the culture that flat out revolts against those commands. That's shocking. What is that scene? That's seen as bigotry and small-mindedness, and we shouldn't be shocked to know that that's how we who seek to live according to God's word and God's standards alone are viewed. We're living in, and this is what I was getting at at the very beginning of this message, right now, we're living in and experiencing a unique time in our country and world. Why? It doesn't take much to look around ourselves and notice the country and the world are crumbling down around our ears, right? The proverbial envelope of this country's morality has been pushed so far that it's been completely ripped in half and there's no clear reasonableness for what's moral and what's not anymore. Children are being raised with no simple understanding of right and wrong, let alone what gender they are. We're hurtling headlong into yet another economic recession, and we're already feeling and hurting from the insane level of inflation and fuel prices. I mentioned a bunch of other in-your-face manifestations of the kingdom of darkness in our country and world right now last week. We have a unique opportunity right now as believers in Jesus, saved by his sacrifice of body and blood to pay for our sins. As dark as this world is right now, the light of Jesus in us has the opportunity now more than ever to shine as bright as could possibly be. As our countries and the world's systems and sources fail, both from war and greed, this is where we see what our faith is really in. What our faith is really in is being laid bare and we're being forced to put our full trust in who we need to have been putting our full trust in all along. Just like with everything that happened as a result of the COVID pandemic, people are being shaken to the core. They're being shaken to see what is true hope. They will be just as shocked to discover what that source really is and how they can also have it. We should be the least upset, least fearful, least unsettled, most hopeful, and most peace-filled people on the face of the planet right now. We know the truth. We have the truth. We know we've been given salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf and repentance of sin. We have Almighty God, the creator of the entire universe, who owns everything as our perfect Heavenly Father, who cherishes us more than anything, who pours out his blessings on us as his children. We have God himself and the angelic military forces of heaven defeating the the, the armies of Satan warring over our minds 
and our souls, giving us victory in every spiritual battle we face. We have the Holy Spirit transforming us, freeing us from debilitating depression and fear, overwhelming temptation and addiction, seeing everything the way the world sees everything, growing in us the peace, comfort, and hope that only he can give, empowering us through the strength of God to face every trial and painful and heartbreaking event we go through, gifting us to do the work God wants us to be doing, and transforming our minds to see and process through everything in this world and in our lives the way God wants us to. So, what are we showing to an unbelieving, fearful, and dark world? More of the same worry? More of the same misplaced priorities? More of the same worldliness? Or are we showing a steady faith in our Father, remaining unshaken, knowing he will provide for our needs? Are we displaying an immovable hope that as the world runs around in confusion and fear, we are confident that our Father has his perfect plan, everything is going according to that plan, and nothing will thwart that plan? Are we showing a peace that can only come from the Holy Spirit, growing it in us, as everyone else's foundations of where they once found their peace are crumbling? Are we focused on what God wants us to be doing with our priorities, our time, the money he's entrusted to us, and how he wants us to be raising our families? Are we living a life of boldness and the courage of the Holy Spirit, powerfully portraying our faith in Jesus to an offended and angry and murderous world, knowing that whatever happens in this life, we have the 100% confidence of where we will be in the next. As we look around us, we can clearly see we are living in the end times, in the last days. We know that Jesus is coming back for us. What are we showing to this seeking world? More of the same? Or the light, hope, and peace of Jesus that they can have too? As the Apostle Paul writes, may we too take this teaching to heart as we go live the rest of our steadfast lives, however short or long they may be, in this dark and imploding world. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the multifaceted grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking actual words of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. amen. May we all confirm this with the amen of our lives. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
Once again, for Jesus' continued conversation uh, with this crowd that has challenged him and is only thinking about things the way they can wrap their minds around. But Lord, you call us to so much more. You have opened our spiritual eyes to see what your word has for us, to see how we can put our faith and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus as our substitute, as the foundation for the repentance of our sin, and have you as our good and perfect Heavenly Father. Lord, as this world runs around in confusion and fear, may we be steadfast pillars of strength, peace, and truth to this unbelieving world. We know we can only do this through the power and the courage and the boldness of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray that you would empower and embolden each and every one of us to live the life you have called us to, especially as we face these these end days. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.